0: You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, Support us at patreon.com slash ARIO, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Kat Rosenfield. Um, Kat is a writer for Unheard, Spectator World, and a variety of other publications. She is the host of the podcast, Feminine Chaos. Um, and she is also the author of two novels. Um, no one will miss her. And we must, um, you must remember this. And uh, Kat has also been on this podcast before. I talked to her about her previous novel, no one will miss her. And I've also been on um, uh, the Feminine Chaos podcast, where I talked about the um, the advantages and disadvantages of sleeping with younger men. So please do check that out as well. I'll put that into the show notes. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> <doggy>. <laughs> oh, Sorry about dear. that. <laughs> He's not very happy at well, this he,
1: podcast. He has something to say about <laughs> the advantages of sleeping with younger men. He's like, I want to contribute to that conversation.
0: <laughs> yes, he doesn't seem to, he, he doesn't seem to approve. Um, welcome back, Kat. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm going to begin, as I, as I often do um, with novelists, by reading an excerpt from the book. So this is from... Um, Slightly further on in the book, but I think it's a passage that doesn't really reveal anything about the plot, um, because uh, um, at the centre of the novel is the death of an older woman called Mimi, um, who is the grandmother of the uh, main protagonist and narrator. So this is at, at Mimi's funeral, but all it really reveals is that Mimi has died. But it does reveal quite a lot, I think, about the um, the protagonist, um, who is an absolutely, um, it, it's a wonderfully enthralling protagonist that you wrote here. Oh, thank you. So she's been talking to a priest, and um, he has given her this maxim, and this is where the excerpt starts. Let go or be dragged, he'd said. A bumper sticker proverb but one that rang embarrassingly true. How many times in my life had I done this, clinging desperately to a moment that was already over, refusing to say goodbye to someone who was already gone? I thought of the night my roommates told me to move out, the way I'd cried and begged to stay just a little longer, another month, another week, unable to stop myself even as I saw Clarissa exchange looks with Colin. So at the beginning of the book, giving a little bit of backstory to this, um, the protagonist is um, has an affair with her, with one of her roommates, um, but uh, he cheats on her and then leaves her for another of the roommates, but she still continues living with them. I saw Clarissa exchange looks with Colin, her lip curling beneath her septum piercing as she mouthed the word, pathetic. I thought of the boyfriend who'd broken up with me my junior year of college and how I kept asking for one more conversation, one more shot at working it out, until he texted me back with a numbered list of all the reasons why he didn't want to date me anymore. Bad breath was the first entry. The last one, number 15, was because you forced me to write this fucking list. I thought about my father letting my calls go to voicemail. Obsessing about the circumstances of Mimi's death wasn't about her. It was about me. Casting myself in the role of detective meant that I would never have to unclench my fingers and release what had already slipped away. I could dwell forever on what might have been and tell myself I was doing something important, courageous, noble. The worst thing, the thing that made me cringe, was realising how close I'd come to buying into my own bullshit. But I didn't have to. I could let go. I could move forward. I could live my life without the fear of falling. And I could start by being honest about the person I wanted to live that life with. Until we tell them. It was time. It had, I realised, been time for a while. The reading of the will was the next day, and I woke up early, full of nervous energy. In the morning we would drive out to Banger to meet with Mimi's lawyer, and in the afternoon, on the drive back home, I would tell my mother the truth about Adam. The house was quiet as I slipped outside and found my way to the pine path, past the deadfall, all the way to the place where we'd found Mimi's body. Snow had fallen overnight, only an inch or so, but it was enough to blanket everything so that the whole world looked soft and clean. I stood there a long time at the mouth of the sea, gazing out into the bay that was half-frozen and half-hidden by fog, and pretended I could see her there. Not the way she'd been when we found her, dead and stiff, her eyes open beneath the ice, but alive, her back turned, her head held high, walking alone into whatever lay beyond the horizon. In this version of her last moment, there was no break in the ice, no plunge into the frozen sea. She just kept walking into the mist until I couldn't see her any more. She was gone, and I was alone. But I wasn't, I thought. Not any more. We drove in silence to Bangor. My mother seemed lost in her own world, drumming her fingers on the steering wheel. I looked out the window at the passing landscape and thought about California. I'd only ever been there once, but the place, even just the word, was imbued with promise. I thought about clean slates, fresh starts. I thought that when I left this place, the only thing I would miss about it was the way it looked under a blanket of freshly fallen snow. And later, I would remember this and think that I should have known better, that I should have seen that beautiful white landscape for what it was. The fresh snow was a lie, an illusion, the thinnest and most fragile layer of beauty laid over an ugly world. It wouldn't last, couldn't, wasn't made to. All it took was a single footstep to break the spell and reveal the dirt underneath. The lawyer's office was a front seating area with a receptionist on one side and three closed doors on the other. The receptionist nodded as we came in, but she seemed distracted, and it was immediately clear why. Behind one of those doors, the one with a gold plate that read Bernard Stewart Esquire, a woman was shouting. My mother hesitated, looked at me, looked back over her shoulder to where we'd parked the car. Maybe we should, she started to say, but she never finished. The shouting reached a shrill peak and stopped. The closed door flew open. Diana stood there, her face pale, her eyes blazing. What's going on? I asked, at the same time as my mother said, why didn't you wait? But neither of us would get an answer. Diana crossed the room in five quick steps. She stopped in front of me. Her mouth was quivering. You conniving little bitch, she said, and slapped me across the face. So I apologize for the fact, for my British accent. You should just translate that in your minds into the appropriate New England. Terms because <laughs> it sounds so much more refined
1: when, when you say <laughs> it.
0: <laughs> um I think it's it's um so one of the things that I think we might get a little bit of a sense of um there is there is um um I feel there's a bit of a difference between this novel and your first novel um in that your protagonist is I would say not extremely naive but quite naive. Yes. Um, that's very true. There are not too many surprises in this novel. Well there are surprises to us, to the readers, but they are um we are we we know we know what's what every time long before the protagonist does. Um, we have a sense of who what people's real identities are, which obviously I'm not going to reveal, but there are a few characters who are not what the protagonist believes them to be, but it's Enough hints are dropped that we, the reader, have a strong suspicion, and even the identity of the murderer is we uh, we very I think fairly quickly by about halfway through the book I think we we know who it is, but the protagonist does not, and um, and of course that means that 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 a lot of the suspense comes from hoping she's going to be okay, stumbling around there, not knowing what the hell she's dealing with. Um, And that's, that's slight, that's slightly different feeling from your, from your earlier book, I think, but also very satisfying. Um, it's not, it's not forced. Um, the, the plot revelations are, um, all feel very natural, um, when they come about. And I like that about the book.
1: Oh, thank you. I should mention this is actually my fifth book. So I've, I've published. Oh, um, yes. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, no, no worries. I um, I was a young adult novelist at the start of my career. And my first book came out in 2012. So exactly 10 years ago. And um, since then, I've pivoted into writing for adults. But as you were talking about, you know, the comparison between this protagonist and the one in No One Will Miss Her, which was published last year, um, it, did, it did occur to me that um, she has some more in common with the, the teenage protagonists. Um, she's just slightly older than a teenager, um, but, you know, of the the books that I used to write. So in a way, this is sort of um, not a complete return to, to my original stomping grounds, but at least a revisit of the same type of naivete in a protagonist as I used to, you know, be sort of confined to because I was writing about teenagers for teenagers.
0: Yes, I mean, she so much wants... She's, um, uh, her, her layer of kind of cynicism and a teen, and a sort of teenage kind of cynicism cynicism and apathy. I think she's a bit older than a teenager, but she still has that kind of brittle shell. Um, but it's like the snow, (laughs) it's very, very thin. And beneath it is this strong desire to believe in the grand romantic story. Mm -hmm. Um, and since, uh, knowing your writing, being familiar with your writing and having read the earlier novel, I knew the grand the romantic story would be an illusion. <laughs> and I was just <laughs> waiting to see when the surface would crack. I hope that's not too much of a spoiler, but I think that's also very... Much implicit in the in the kind of novel it is. Yes, I think that's true. I
1: mean, it's my hope that at least some people won't actually figure out halfway through the book who um, you know even that it was a murder um, and or or who the murderer was. But um, it's okay if you do. Obviously, that's sort of the goal is for you know some people to be able to figure it out ahead of time and for some to be surprised.
0: It's quite terrifying, actually, um, because you know and you're waiting. You know, you're like no, no, don't be alone with this person. <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> don't fall for this. Um, so it has that kind of, you know, pa- uh, ha- well, it's not a pantomime, but it has that pantomime feeling of look behind you, right? Right. <laughs> um, and uh, um, I, I enjoyed that actually, um, and I enjoyed feeling clever having worked it out. Or I thought I had worked it out. I, I was still, cons- I was worried that you were going to make some final twist and prove me wrong. And I was like, no, don't do that. <laughs> Let me have this.
1: Yes, you can um, absolutely have it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that it's the story fits together very naturally, and that's also what made it easier to guess, but also, um, you know, made it work in a sense um so what some of the Agatha Christie cell plots feel they're really wonderful but the ending can feel quite forced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it's like here are all the more the people who would more naturally have been <laughs> inclined to do the murder and then it's somebody else you had never you you had never thought of who really didn't have as much motive um at the end of the day um but it it gives us an opportunity to show how clever Poirot is or whatever. I'm not fond of those, those Christie. Um, I'm not fond of it when Christie does that particular gambit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I, I like a, a the novel, a novel that avoids that. And that yeah. doesn't mean there's no suspense. There is certainly suspense. Um, it's quite chilling. Um, and, uh, um, yeah. <laughs> you will not be able to go to bed until you have finished reading.
1: Oh, I well that's the best compliment I could possibly get. Thank you. I'm so happy to hear that.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. So you I didn't sorry I didn't realize that you had written um young adult fiction. Um Actually, I think I did know that because you have written about the young adult fiction scene. Yes. Um, and so I should have known that you had also been a young adult fiction writer, but for some reason I didn't put two and two together. So what made you a turn from young adult fiction to adult fiction? and How did you um, modify your approach and writing style when you did that?
1: Um, yeah, I think that I always... Even when I was writing for teenagers, my themes and writing style skewed more adult. Um, At the time that I was writing for teenagers, it was, you know, um, I I started doing that, uh, sold that first book in in 2010, and then it came out in 2012. It was called Amelia Ann is Dead and Gone. And uh, that was a moment that I refer to as peak YA. It was when there were just, there was was an enormous market for young adult fiction. A lot of adults were reading YA and reading YA exclusively. Um, Virtually every Hollywood adaptation that was being made was of a YA novel. It was just a very, very rich moment. And there was a sense of an enormous amount of opportunity and an enormous amount of money to be made. And there was room to, to just kind of play and for people like me who didn't write necessarily kind of traditional teen fiction to do stuff that was a little bit more sophisticated, a little darker and a little weirder. Um, And so I was in there at that moment at the same time as for instance, John Green was writing, um, you know, things like the fault in our stars that which came out in 2014 or sorry, 2013. Um, And it's uh, yeah, you know, it's so it was not an, completely unnatural pivot to writing for adults, Um, what mostly happened is that my characters just got older and the themes got maybe a little bit more mature. I was able to go a little darker, a little sexier than when I was writing for teenagers. But apart from that, I I wouldn't say that it was a huge change.
0: Mm, mm. And what, what drew you to want to write for younger people in the first place? That was
1: a sort of an accident. When I wrote this first novel, um, the main character was a teenager. Um, The book takes place the summer after she's graduated from high school. And per the kind of rules of the publishing game at that time, if your main character was a teenager, then your book was a young adult book. And so that's, you know, the, the publishing house that bought that book was Dutton Juvenile. And so I just sort of ended up situated there for, you know, the next several years writing for teenagers. And I was, um, I was actually employed as a journalist at MTV News at that time, writing, among other things, about young Hollywood gossip. So it was actually a pretty good fit. Um, You know, I was really immersed in that whole kind of youth culture um, that surrounded things like Twilight and The Hunger Games. And so, you know, I I felt like my brain was just very much situated in that space.
0: Mm, Yeah, it's interesting because I was thinking that when I was a teen, um, it would I, well, I guess um, what I, I guess I thought of there as just being children's literature, but that included some things that weren't really aimed at young children, like Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. um, which I I guess Lord of the Rings is teen fiction. I And then there was um, just fiction. Um, and when I was a teen, so when I was like, I guess, 13, 14, 15, around that age, I was reading Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read all the Henry James novels, um, one after another. And I do remember that I, when I reread them at an older age, I realized that I hadn't understood them very well at all. I didn't, I didn't understand what was really going on in the wings of the dove. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember feeling slightly baffled that James was hinting at things and I wasn't mature enough to pick up on the hints. Um, especially because, you know, I was reading at a time when I never had a romantic relationship. And actually, I was an extremely, it's really hard to imagine now but I was extremely quiet, (laughs) introverted. (laughs) Um, I was an extremely, extremely uh, lonely and introverted adolescent. Um, That is a little bit uh, shocking
1: to hear. uh,
0: Yes, I know. And now it's like, if I had just found somewhere in the middle and stayed there all my life, things would probably be much better, but I just veered from one extreme to the other. Um, But I, uh, you know, I didn't really even have, I had one close friendship, but we didn't see each other very often because we were at different boarding schools. Um, So in fact, I didn't really even have any close relationships. So it's odd that I was reading, um, I was reading books that were so heavily dependent on Understanding how relationships worked, um, but yet I was very uh, hooked on them, mm-hmm. and um, and also the Brontes, and um, I read uh, Middlemarch, um, and um, so those books felt like um, kind of they felt like chick lit to me. They felt like sort of teen chick lit, and I actually um, at that stage I couldn't I couldn't imagine a, a boy reading those books. Um, I found it hard to imagine that men read books, actually. I thought books were just this female world of analyzing behavior and, um, social mores and things. So that was kind of, that was to me, um, it, that, that was kind of the transition from Lord of the Rings to, um, Jane Austen was the transition from kind of teen lit to adult lit.
1: Interesting. Um, But I didn't,
0: I didn't think of there as being a sort of, um, teen version of those novels of, of manners. Um, yeah, um, I read. I, I also I interviewed um, um, Rebecca Christiansen um, mm-hmm. a few months ago for this podcast, and I read her young adult fiction book "We Make Mayhem." And um, yes, I don't recall reading anything like that as I was growing up, um, and I was surprised by how much explicit sex there was in it, actually, in the remake Mayhem book. Yeah, you know, a lot more can kind of get in
1: there at this point. I'm thinking about when I was growing up, um, I also was coming of age before young adult fiction really kind of was the thing that the, the force that it is now. So, um, what I had was things like, uh, you know, Judy Bloom and are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. And, you know, these, these sort of very adolescent coming of age stories, but that felt in many ways, like they were written by your mom, you know, (laughs) not your mom specifically, Mm, but mm. by, by somebody's (laughs) mom. Um, and I think that Maybe what's changed now is that the the books have gotten more sensational. Uh, the authors are, are writing more from a place of affinity with teenagers rather than trying to instruct them in things. When I Compare things like um, well, there was that memoir which which turned out to be fake called Go Ask Alice that was supposed to be like this this crazy you know memoir of drug experimentation and um, you know eventually the author was supposedly found dead and it was uh, you know supposed to scare kids off of experimenting with drugs, um, but the the sort of moral message embedded in that as versus what you find in young adult fiction now I think is just very very different.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking Anne of Green Gables. That's probably young adult fiction. Um, yeah, that probably qualifies. I there's, so, there's so much
1: from that era, you know, the things like Caddy Woodlawn mm-hmm. or, um, you know, and it's funny that you mentioned Lord of the Rings, which of course is, I mean, Tolkien wrote that in part as a response to his experiences, like in the trenches of World War One. So it's not really what you would think of as a teenage book, but something about the adventure element, I guess, maybe, leads it to be popular amongst younger people and especially young men.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm just um I I think the memoirs and diaries that that has a very obvious appeal. Um and we did read I did read Anne Frank's diary as a teen and mm-hmm. also um the diary of Anne Frank and also um Kinder vom Bahnhof Zoo which i was doing german and we read it in german um the children of the children of um uh Zoo, bahnhof zo is one of the stations in berlin um one of the underground stations in berlin and that is a memoir of um a young girl who becomes a drug addict um it's it's quite hard hitting and mm. i i do it it did make me not want to take drugs i have to say i don't know <laughs> if that was the purpose of it and i haven't um I, I haven't thought about it from that day to this so i don't know whether it's a real true story written by a real narrator whether it was meant as a cautionary tale or anything like that um i i remember just some quite vivid d- descriptions of drug taking um and and also um i remember the her kind of abusive and unpleasant childhood mm-hmm. and that was definitely a kind of a felt like a young, uh, I guess, a, I guess young adult fiction just really encourages you to identify with a young protagonist. Yes, it's um, very true. And that's where you have the difference, the shift from that to Jane Austen, because Jane Austen, um, of course, you empathize, but she does not encourage you to identify um, the protagonist uh, like your protagonist in this novel um, knows less than you, the reader does do. Mm -hmm. Um, You often see things narrated through, um, well, in in Jane Austen, the narrative changes from a lot from character to character, and you see things through different people's eyes, and very, very rarely through the authors. Um, But you always know that uh, when people are telling you things, you they're giving you their perspective on things and their perspective, especially if we're talking about the protagonist's perspective, is often skewed and misguided mm-hmm. and just flat out mistaken. And you don't have that feeling reading um uh, via Kinder von Bahnhof Zoo or The Diary of Anne Frank or um any of those kinds of things. The narrator's voice feels just raw, authentic, trustworthy. Etc. Does that does that make sense? Sorry, I didn't mean to give a huge lecture. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's interesting <laughs> to think about. Yeah, that does make sense to me. So, do you feel that there are um, were any of those young adult fiction books murder mysteries? Um, and um, if if so, how does that work? And if not, what sort of drew you towards writing? murder mysteries uh yeah so the first one was a murder mystery
1: um the second one was more of a psychological thriller with a light supernatural flavor and um i don't know i I, i'd like i mean i like a good mystery uh, a good thriller or a good horror movie or, or book um those are the kinds of stories that i'm drawn to the the kinds of stories I most enjoy, you know, consuming myself. And so I think it's natural that, um, you know, I gravitate towards writing them as well. But the other thing is I think that all writers have uh, a a sort of a, a intellectual or mental filter where things Tend to stick and then like accumulate, um, you know, where ideas tend to stick and accumulate, um, you know, the trappings of a story. And it's something different for everyone, but for me, <laughs> it's what if a murder happened? What if a murder happened in this scenario? <laughs> what if somebody died here? Like, what if this was the start of you know of some kind of. Plot involving a death, and um, this is something that I do sometimes out loud to other people. It drives my husband crazy. Uh, <laughs> I get a faraway look in my eye, and he looks at me and he says, "Are you thinking about somebody getting murdered?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I am." So um, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason. I just i like to I like to tell these kind of stories. I find myself thinking a lot about constructing you know stories based on things that happen in my life will end up you know kind of getting passed through that mental filter and coming out on the other side as either a thriller or a mystery.
0: Mm, that's interesting. i wonder um i mean i i in a way, somebody getting murdered is a is a kind of stamp of seriousness isn't it uh, i mean i have a friend who when i get upset or anxious about things she says did anybody die
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: nobody died so it can't be that bad um you know there's got to be a um if there's if there's no dead bodies it's not that bad she's a <laughs> she's a criminal lawyer by the way so she knows what she's talking about yeah she said it a um, perspective yes um but i wonder why it is that as so many um I don't know if you have any theories about why so why you are so drawn to that or also perhaps um, maybe separately why so many women are drawn to this genre um so many of the famous murder mystery writers are are women I mean so many novelists are women but they we seem to be disproportionately represented among readers and writers of of murder mm-hmm. stories
1: that's true. And, you know, I've heard a theory, which I don't know if I agree with, but um, I have heard this theory that one of the reasons that women consume so much, um, you know, either mystery fiction or true crime. And one of the reasons why they're you know big producers of these kinds of stories is that it takes what is a real threat in our lives and makes it manageable, interesting, and even maybe a little bit fun. Now, I'm not sure that I necessarily think that that's true, but it's an interesting way of of thinking about things. Um, if you assume that, you know, everything that you're consuming is ultimately in service of some sort of subconscious, subterranean impulse to, to make yourself feel more secure. Um, but I, I think the other thing is that, you know, women obviously are, you know, more kind of predominant in the domestic realm and that's where the more interesting types of murder mysteries you know the types of murders that that, or deaths that make for good fiction that's where they tend to take place um you know the other the other types of deaths um you know things like either Drug warfare or actual warfare, you know, if you to say somebody's going to die on a battlefield tomorrow, um, that's just not all that surprising or interesting. It doesn't invite, you know, the question of, well, gosh, what happened? How did that happen? Um, you know, if somebody dies on a battlefield, you sort of know intuitively why and how. So, um, you know, maybe that explains at least partially. Why women are so, I guess, dominant in the kind of murder fiction genre?
0: Yeah, I think that second explanation at least makes more sense to me, because um, I don't think most of us are actually at any risk of being murdered. That would be that would be bad. Um, <laughs> it's true. I, statistically, statistically I,
1: actually, men are at much more of a risk just day to day of being murdered than women are.
0: Um. Right. Um, but but also probably of getting into fights.
1: Mm-hmm. Um yes. so I,
0: uh, it's it's likely that when uh women are killed we're we're less expecting it. Um we haven't kind of got into a big altercation with somebody. Um I I don't know. Um but yeah, you do it is I mean you do have to focus in on the small details when you're reading a murder mystery. Um And you have to focus in on the on the nuances of relationships and also just details like who passed the spoons to whom in which direction round the table mm-hmm. um, in order to uh put together the jigsaw puzzle of the of the plot um in order to kind of follow and solve it so you can't have a murder mystery that is a that is a picaresque sort of big um panoramic romp you know. But yeah, you know, I mean, ultimately, well, all novels
1: are about conflict and murder mysteries just are about that conflict taken usually to, you know, obviously a a violent extreme. But at the bottom of it, it, there's still this question of, you know, who people are to each other and what are they doing to each other. And I think that's, you know, why you do have to pay attention if you hope to understand what happened. And if you hope to figure it out before it's actually revealed to you by the author, Um, you know, how are people interacting? What are they saying? What are they not saying? All of that.
0: Mm. Do you feel that there's something that you can say within uh, there are kinds of things that you can say and do within a murder mystery genre that you you couldn't do if you uh if you were writing in a if you were writing a, a realistic novel for example that didn't involve murder um do you feel that the genre gives you certain possibilities or do you feel more that it presents certain challenges uh well i guess probably both i'm just thinking about my
1: my previous book um Opens with a severed nose found in a garbage disposal, and obviously <laughs> that's an opportunity that you don't get if you're <laughs> writing <laughs> if you're writing a less uh, violent form of fiction. So um, it's tr- you know, if if your brain tends to go to dark places, and mine certainly does, then you know, writing in this genre is a chance to kind of indulge that and let it unfold and and build these sort of you know dark, creepy puzzle boxes with something horrible at the center. Um but I mean ultimately I think all novelists are doing versions of the same thing. Um you know so there are I'm trying to think how I'm trying to think how to wrap this answer up. Um you know I think yes there are things that you can do or things that you're invited to do by writing about crime and about death and about darkness um that you know you don't get in your average like you know, kind of classic Jane Austen retelling, Chiclet sort of, uh, sort of a story, but at the same time, you know, there is still the same types of drama. There is still betrayal um, and lies and intrigue, and it's just not necessarily that it ends with somebody getting killed in those stories.
0: Mm. I think, um, I mean, I think that the, a lot of the Chiclet doesn't work partly because um, Jane Austen. Even though you uh, the the uh, reader may not realize it in the course of reading, but it's the innovative way in which Jane Austen uses the genre um, that provides a lot of the punch of her novels so if you take that out and you just try to write a kind of romance boy boy meets Girl romance um, or some social Comedy of Social Manners, um, without without using those techniques that she uses, you end up with something very bland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, you end up with Bridgerton, um, <laughs> which made me turn off the TV after 20 minutes.
1: Um, <laughs> well, you didn't stick around long enough for it to get unbland, not in terms of story, but in terms of how much naked flesh was being shown on the screen. <laughs>
0: Oh, I'm sure there was plenty of naked flesh.
1: It's oh all kind
0: of costu- costumes plus soft porn, yes, you know, fancy furnishings and things. Yeah,
1: um, that's just quite anachronistic and- in in almost all ways. Um, which makes oh, it yeah. really interesting that they decided to. It's like it's like they wanted to, yeah, film a a soft core porno, but they also just really liked the clothing that people wore in the, what is it, Edwardian period um, or the empire period. And so they, you know, just kind of regency. Regency, Yeah, that's it. And yeah, they just sort of wrapped, uh, you know, wrapped those dresses around this incredibly steamy slutty story, like a, like a little bow and hope nobody would really care or notice.
0: Um, There's, I'm going to read another passage from your book um, because um, I felt, i find my stylus as so i was able to find a passage and um also because i think this is um uh, he, uh here is your treatment of some of the historical stuff so this is from um um this is this is from the childhood of mimi um the grandmother whose whose life story is um whose um life story and secrets of whose past is are at the center, um, of your novel. Um, and, um, Maybe I should just
1: explain to kind of, to kind of situate your listeners. Oh that, yes, please um, do. Yeah. So there are two timelines in this book. Um, the, the first timeline takes place in 2014 around Christmas time. Um, this large family has gathered, Uh, to celebrate what they expect will be their final Christmas with Miriam Caravazios, the matriarch of the family, who has dementia. And she does, on Christmas Eve, um, slip out of the house, fall through the ice, and die. Uh, So, you know, in the the present, or at least the contemporary timeline, you have her granddaughter Delphine sort of investigating, um, you know, becoming obsessed with the idea that maybe something untoward happened to her grandmother and looking into that. And then uh, you also have... Have Another timeline takes place in the past running from about 1930 through 1960. And that follows Miriam when she was a young woman living in the same house where everyone has gathered, um, falling in love with a local fisherman named Theo. So, uh, you go back and forth between the two. And Miriam's story and her granddaughter's story exist sort of in conversation with each other. There are certain parallels. Um, and I'm going to stop talking about this now, lest I spoil something. But that's why you will have these two separate timelines. So, the one is written um, first person by Delphine, narrated first person by Delphine in the present. And then this other timeline narrated third person. Um, and tells the story of Miriam's life.
0: Um, okay, so this is um, the, the setting of this, the specific setting of this particular um, uh, passage that I'm going to read is uh, Miriam is playing hide-and-seek uh, with one of the w- neighbor's children, um, a boy called Harold. I think that's all we uh, really um, need to know. Miriam suggests hide-and-seek, and volunteers to be it first, since it is her house. She leads the group out of the dining room and into the front foyer, where two long hallways stretch away into the house, and a grand staircase rises toward the second floor. She points. Upstairs is out of bounds, but anywhere in the north wing is fair game. The little Chandler girls clap their hands and scatter off into the shadows as Miriam sits on the staircase, closes her eyes and begins to count. But when she reaches ten and opens them, she sighs. Stupid Harold is still standing exactly where he was, staring at her. Outside, the sky is deepening and shadows are beginning to pool in the hallway. She hears the clink of glassware and the tinkle of laughter from the veranda. It sounds far away. You're supposed to hide, Miriam says, and bites her tongue to keep from adding, Dummy. I'm going to close my eyes and count to ten. Mama said that you and me are going to get married, Harold says, staring at her. His face doesn't look so red in the dark, but his strange pale eyes are unsettling, the pupils like big black holes. Miriam's mouth drops open. Now she doesn't have to bite her tongue at all. She couldn't speak if she wanted to. Harold takes a step toward her and makes a sort of clumsy half-bow. I want to give you a kiss. Oh, says Miriam faintly. Oh, no, no, thank you. But Harold takes another step toward her, and the little pink lips at the center of his very red face start to pucker. And Miriam realizes with dismay that Harold intends to give her the kiss, whether she wants it or not. And so she does the only thing she can think of she stands up and taps him hard with her index finger, right in the center of his chest. Harold's puckered mouth transforms into a little O of surprise. He stares at her. I found you, so you're it, Miriam says gaily and skips away into the house. She doesn't look back to see what Harold is doing, but some small part of her wonders if she's made a mistake, if the Chandler boy will turn out to be what her mother would call persistent. Persistent is not necessarily a bad thing. Miriam's own father was persistent, which is why mother ended up married to him and not some other suitor, of which she had many. But Miriam does not want persistence from Harold. She doesn't want anything from Harold at all. She nearly sighs aloud with relief when his voice rings out from the foyer. One, he says glumly. There's a long pause and a sigh. Then even more glumly. Two, Miriam darts through a dimly lit parlour and into her father's library, inhaling the familiar scent of pipe tobacco and old books harold is nearly done counting but she lingers just inside the open door waiting listening hide and seek is miriam's favorite game and she is its undefeated champion because she figured out long ago that the secret to winning isn't staying hidden it's staying in motion creeping from one hiding place to another concealing yourself in spots that the seeker already investigated and found empty, sliding unseen around corners like a ghost. Sometimes, when she is feeling especially mischievous, she'll make it into her own game and begin following the person looking for her, daring herself to get closer and closer. Nobody has ever caught her doing this, but it's thrilling to take the risk and to see the way that people begin jumping at every creak and shadow the longer the chase goes on, as if they can sense they're being hunted. Um, so I think that passage gives us a nice flavor of the way in which you um, uh, treat the kind of sensibilities of the past, mm-hmm. um, the the kind of mild creepiness, which here is resolved, but is a, is a constant undercurrent, um, undertone within the book, um every every kind of situation is mined for maximum creepiness. <laughs> um, and uh um also the I that passage really describes the um the experience of um of, of the murder mystery novel, of reading a novel and also of um the uh, the self-appointed detective making it into your own game and following the person looking for you, daring yourself to get closer and closer. Um, So this is something obviously that the granddaughter does. Um, And it becomes, the question becomes who is, who is looking for who? Also this idea of um, going back and hiding in places that you've already discounted as empty, that you've already kind of passed. um, You've already looked into and decided were empty. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, also uh, describes i feel a, a way of um a kind of plot device that is characteristic of the of the murder mystery novel I never thought about that, but that's so true. Uh, when, I,
1: when I wrote this scene, what I was thinking of was that this is my preferred strategy for playing hide and seek. Um, you know, to, to, to <laughs> leave my hiding place and then go and hide some place where the the person had already looked and you know concluded there was nobody there. Um, I never took it quite to the extremes that Miriam does, um, but yes, this was uh, this proved very effective for me as a kid playing
0: hide and seek with my friends. This is exactly. Um, I, I mean, this this is a spoiler, not for your book, but I think most people have read um, Agatha Christie's um, book, and then there were none, okay. um, um, and uh, that's that's precisely how the murderer gets gets um, past, eludes detection in that book um, by kind of going back and hiding in a place that's already been searched. Mm-hmm. Um, that book was made into a movie called Ten Little Indians, right?
1: Am I remembering correctly? Yes, yes. yes.
0: Uh, way back in the day, before it was very politically, it, it was called Ten Little N Words. Uh, we actually have a copy. <laughs> we, we have that copy of the um, original here in the house. Yes. Already. Oh my goodness! Not not the original, but of the edition that is called Ten Little N Words. Um, yeah, it's it's. Um, um, um. What was I going to say? I got. To, I managed to distract myself. Oh, um, we were talking yeah. about
1: you know the strategy of uh, you know using uh, red herrings um, as a, you mm-hmm. know both a hide and seek strategy and also as an authorial one.
0: Yes. Well, things that you dismiss as red herrings and then you come back and realize you shouldn't have dismissed them mm-hmm. after all. Um, that's a that's a very sort of common authorial strategy. Um in, in the murder mysteries. Yeah, do you um um so you've you've been a writer for um For how long did you, for 20 years, more than 20 years? Ah, gosh, no, um, probably 15.
1: I didn't know that Mm. I wanted to be, I'm not one of these people who was like, oh, I always wanted to be a writer. I always knew I was going to be a writer. I really fell backwards into it when it turned out that I was just absolute crap at everything else. Um, And, you know, I've been very lucky to, you know, make a go of it since then. So I started writing um, in earnest about 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, it was around the time that I got married to somebody who was um, very supportive of my aspirations to write, which was, you know, if the, that's not a coincidence that these two things coincided.
0: No, I, I agree. I mean, sadly, I think that um, most people I know who are professional writers, um, or the vast majority um, have family support or a spouse who has a more sensible career. Mm -hmm. that makes it possible to, makes it possible to write without being in a state of continual financial anxiety. Yes. Um, Yeah.
1: You know, I mean, you, you can, if you're lucky, eventually reach a point where you're not in a state of continual financial anxiety. And I got there um, maybe two years ago, but prior to that, you know we're talking about thirteen years of continual financial anxiety <laughs> um so having somebody with a real job that pays you know a decent living and also uh provides health insurance was quite useful to me in my career
0: oh yeah absolutely i think that's a, that's a very 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 frequent pattern um, um yeah i do you do you feel um um I know you encountered – I know that the young adult fiction scene has, um, has become extremely um, – or, or, or at least it had a, a couple of years ago when I was last really following um, that scene – has become uh, extremely kind of judgmental. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of very naive criticism, which is about writers shouldn't write characters who have bad views – Um, And also there's a lot of identity politics that has come into it, um, belief that writers shouldn't write about characters who have, um, uh, whose 23 and me would look different from theirs, Mm -hmm. um, say, um, or who have a different sexuality from them or uh, something of that kind. Um, Have you noticed any of that kind of judgmentalism creeping into the um, adult fiction world, or is it, really is that really not going to happen because people are just gonna readers are going to read what they find gripping and they won't care about the political correctness of it so i think that uh where you have seen
1: this kind of coming in is in literary fiction um you know that's a, a sort of a different world from where i write which is genre fiction so um you know what happened in y a and this is this is actually often the case, you know, if you're going to have a moral panic, which is essentially what this was um, the this sort of new wave of political correctness or or wokeness, if you want to call it that um, this this stuff tends to incubate in spaces or to to coalesce around content aimed at young people, um, because it's very easy to kind of work yourself into a lather about the prospect of some vulnerable child or teenager, you know, reading the wrong thing or seeing the wrong thing and being harmed by it. And so that made for an excellent pretense to start really policing the content of, you know, this or that, Young adult novel, you know, telling people what they, you know, what stories they were allowed to tell, and so on, and then, yeah, it did, it did start to kind of creep out into the mainstream. I think you do see it in literary fiction. There was obviously a, a huge to do surrounding this book, American Dirt, which is actually more of a thriller but because it was positioned as this kind of great American, um, you know, people were talking about it as though it was like, you know, the next wave of Steinbeck, you know, Steinbeck for for the 21st century. Um, you know, it attracted a lot of that type of criticism that, you know, the author was the wrong identity to write these characters or to tell this story, you know, how dare she? She hadn't done it justice. She had done harm. Um, I think that you tend to see less of this in really commercial fiction um, and you know there's there are a few things more commercial than crime novels. Um, the one exception is romance. You are starting to see a little bit more of this creeping into the romance novel world. And I think it's not a very politically correct thing to say. Um, but I think one of the reasons why that is the case is that that's a world that's really very, very much dominated by women, you know, women readers, women writers. And so similar to what happened in YA where you had A certain number of people who realized that they could kind of leverage this, um, you know, social justice ethos to benefit them personally and professionally by kind of knocking their competition off the playing field, you're starting to see a similar form of sort of professional jealousy and professional competition in romance um, You know that revolves around the idea of, of policing what people are allowed to write given whatever their personal identity or background is. Um, so, you know, that's a sort of a long winded way of saying that it's, it's happening a bit. Um, it's certainly more prevalent in adult fiction now than it used to be. Uh, if you're writing an adult novel now, there's a much greater chance that somebody is going to tell you that you require a sensitivity reader, which would have been unheard of just a few years ago. That was just a YA thing a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, you know, things are, I think, to some extent changing, but I also think, um, A lot of people are just getting really, really tired of this. And, you know, that probably, at least in in some senses, it's on its way out. At least I hope so, because it it does make the whole scene kind of unbearable in certain ways.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm totally against it for young adults as well. Um, For the same reasons as, you know, I think young adults can also have um, a book about being trans in the life in the school library or whatever um i i feel that uh, readers even younger readers don't need to be protected from stuff um and i think that um i mean um i think that i probably needed to be protected i need i personally as an adult need to be protected from being scared so there are certain books and especially films, actually, that I don't watch because it's going to be too frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that has nothing to do with sensitivity readers. And I I don't feel as though, uh, I just don't think anything in a book is going to really damage you, to be honest. Um,
1: that is mostly true. I actually have had the experience that i with this one book that's actually notorious for having this effect on people, um, I, I was reading a book and th- it was so upsetting that I went hysterically blind and fainted. Um, and it actually <laughs> wouldn't have been that big My of a goodness. deal. I was on a subway platform at the time. So, uh, this was a little brush with death. Fortunately, somebody caught me before I just pitched into the path of the oncoming train. But yeah, this is, um, you know, I think this is maybe the one like documented instance of a book actually causing <laughs> physical harm to somebody. It was, uh, this, uh, novel haunted by Chuck Palahniuk. And it opens with a short story called guts, which is, um, you know, apparently notorious for uh people would pass out when he read it aloud at book events um you know somebody would always faint it, it is very upsetting to the point where like i can't talk about it too much because i start feeling a little woozy but um yeah if you want to explore why why, why is it okay. upsetting it's uh, uh no i do, said wow but oh, okay. <laughs> no, please do tell
0: me <laughs> um
1: it's a very graphic um body horror Story and I yeah I have to I have to stop talking there. But I think that you know if that is intriguing to you or to anybody listening, pick up the book. Um, I recommend not reading it uh, in the path of an oncoming train, just in case. But uh, you know, see if it see if it has this impact on you.
0: Um, I shall absolutely definitely never read that book. Um, um, I really uh, I really can't read um, horror at all. Um, I can deal with a little bit of frisson, um, which you have in your book, but if it were full on horror, um, I don't think I could deal with that. Um, Right. And I I think the thing is about, you know, um,
1: when it comes to the idea of a book causing harm to somebody, you know, obviously I had this experience, but that's in part because I felt myself getting upset. I felt myself getting sweaty and, you know, having a physical re- response to what I was reading. And I made a decision as an adult. I mean, it was a stupid decision, ooh, ooh. but it was nevertheless my choice to continue pushing through. I was like, I can get to the end of this story. I'll be fine. Tough it out, you big baby. And then I was on the floor. Um, but, you know, I think that that's the thing is, uh, you know, you, you have the opportunity if you encounter something in the pages of a book that is upsetting to you to just close it. It's available.
0: Yeah. And surely also that the fact that it has such a strong effect on people is a testament to the author. And therefore, in a way, you should want to cause harm. Uh, I mean, of this kind, you should want to have a psychological, maybe harm is the wrong word, but you should want to have a psychological impact as a writer, right? Oh, of course. Yeah. You want
1: people to feel something when they read your work. I mean, what's the point otherwise?
0: Um, and as I certainly do remember frightening and disgusting passages, very acute, with particular acuteness, um, you know, for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all descended from people who looked over into the shadows and saw a tiger and were scared, um, and ran away <laughs> rather than people who are just like, let's just be in the moment eating these nice fruits and chill. <laughs> Don't worry about that tiger over there. Um, those people were lunch <laughs> so um i um i think that it's um um and it's uh, uh, well this is a topic that has been talked about to death and i don't have anything new to contribute but clearly there is a kind of liberating enjoyment in vicariously uh, experiencing or experiencing in your imagination things that you would never want to experience in real life that willing suspension of disbelief as coleridge calls it and he does he does say willing which is that that adjective is often left out when people cite that passage um Yes, that's interesting. You know, I'm just starting to
1: think about how many experiences, including reading books, but not only reading books, are kind of a facsimile, like the nearest thing you can get to something that is actually dangerous, so that you experience that frisson, as you were saying, you experience that feeling of, of excitement and of danger but you know, ultimately, you know, somewhere beneath it all that you're safe. And that's true of, you know, reading a terrifying book. It's also true of, for instance, riding a roller coaster that gives you the sensation of like plummeting through space. Um, Mm. you know, I think, I think we're often, we're often chasing that sensation, um, you know, of being, of, of being afraid of being in danger. Um, but in a way that is not actually dangerous.
0: Well, I'm quite, I, I almost never, uh, watch TikTok, but I follow one account on TikTok and it's, um, little clips of people, uh, mountaineering and rock climbing and things like that in very, at the very, very most dangerous parts. Um, oh my gosh. And, um, I'm, I, I'm completely. Um, I, I, actually can't watch too much of that. I start to feel physically sick, mm-hmm. but at, up to the moment at which I feel too queasy, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. In yeah. a weird way of enjoying it. I mean, it's, it, it's natural. I think it's partially just that it's natural to want to, to experience the full range of human emotion and human life. Um, but of course you want to experience that a lot of that range in a safe way. Um, You know, I want uh, part of human life is being stalked by a serial killer. Um, But I don't want to experience that in real life, of course, Mm -hmm. but I do, but I do want to experience it in a novel, Um, uh, in a film, probably less so. I mean, I do regret seeing the shining. I've had so many nightmares um, about the scene in the, in the library, where she comes upon his typewriter, um, and all of the pages say, "All, all work and no play make Jack a dull boy." Wow! Um, so that, that's
1: the that's the part that you found most terrifying. That's really interesting. Yes. It's you know that's this really of, frightening. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's but it's just words on a page, right? And yet, <laughs> that's scarier than the bathtub lady.
0: I also had a very. I also had a really terrifying experience watching uh, a beautiful mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was having uh, constant nightmares that I was um schizophrenic. Um And within the nightmare, I would be waking up, quote unquote. So I thought I had woken up and I thought, phew, what a relief. This was just a nightmare. And then I looked over and the plant in the corner of the room was a kind of basket full of snakes. And I realized it wasn't just a nightmare. And I actually did have schizophrenia, just like the character in the film. Oh my um, goodness. This went on for weeks. So, I mean, I feel that but is that harm? You know, is it actually, is it harmful to be upset or to be scared or to be angry or enraged by something you read in a book? Is that harmful? I would say no, actually. <laughs> That's just, it's, it's not pleasant, but, um, it's not harm. I don't think right. it's harm. That's
1: a really good point. Yeah, I I think, you know, we live in a moment where there is a real urge to conflate any form of discomfort, including, you know, the kind of discomfort that leads to growth with harm. But of course, if you do that, then you shut off the the opportunity for growth, um, or for resilience, or for transformation.
0: Mm, Yeah. Um, Kat, is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to talk about or wish I had asked?
1: I don't think so. Um, I will will take this opportunity to say that my new book uh, releases on January 10th. I believe it is coming out in the UK on the same day as it comes out in the US. It's called You Must Remember This and you can pick it up any place that you would buy a book.
0: Um, That's great. And I will put some links uh, down in the show notes. I think this will come out um, probably towards the end of January. um, Perfect. um, Because I, since I recently, you are the third of three uh, authors of murder mysteries whom I have recently interviewed. So um, I'll try and space those out a little bit. I interviewed Alice Drager, uh, about her novel, The Index Case, and I interviewed Nev March about her novel, Peril at the Exposition. They're both fantastic novels as well, and completely different uh, from yours in feel. Um, I think there is a very specifically kind of Kat Rosenfeldian um, ambience and setting. Um, there is a kind of, I, I mean, I do feel as though your novels have a quite specific aesthetic um, would that would that be fair to say
1: oh gosh um, i mean i i hope so that's a very wonderful thing to hear i do like the idea that you know there's something that ties them together that it's more than just the fact that the covers share an aesthetic which is of course not my doing that's my publisher's doing but yeah you know the The thing, I mean, obviously all my books do take place in the state of Maine and I'm sort of making my way around Maine, um, you know, trying to explore different settings there just because it's a a place that's very close to my heart. Um, But, you know, to to be able to kind of explore different parts of the mystery genre and this, you know, this book is much less of a thriller and much more of a family drama than my previous one. I love the idea that there's something that ties them together in that way.
0: Mm. Yeah, there's clearly. I mean, I think that I, I'm not sure there are influences of Stephen King. I think I'm just projecting those because of the setting. I mean, he is my um, favorite author, or
1: one of them. Oh, um, he is. So ah. you know,
0: I, I will certainly take that. Um, who do you see as as your as having influenced you in your writing?
1: Um, let's see. Well, Stephen King is certainly one. Uh, I would say. Shirley Jackson is another, um, gosh, I'm trying to think, um, in terms of constructing a plot, I often look to, uh, Gillian Flynn, who I think is very good at, um, you know, writing books that are, you know, not just compelling, but, but really just pacey as hell. And, um, oh, who else, who else do I like? Um, or rather who else has influenced me? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, well, this one, definitely, there's a, there's a little bit of Agatha Christie going on in there. Um, there's a little bit of Daphne du Maurier going on in there. And yeah, I think that that's a, a probably adequate collection of, of the people who I turn to for inspiration.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much, Kat. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you again. Oh, thank you for having me. And have a wonderful week, everyone. Thanks. You too. And happy travels. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely Leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash Ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash Two for T. Have a wonderful week.